This is Adam Cantor, chair of the AANS-CNS Joint Section of the Spine and Peripheral Nerves. I am excited and honored to invite everyone listening to the Nurse Surgery Podcast to join us at the new Modern 2023 Spine Summit, where we will celebrate our theme, Excellence Requires Change, with our MVPs, Mastery, Vision, and Purpose. And it's going to be in beautiful Miami Beach, Florida, March 16th to the 19th of 2023. It is going to be at the historic Fountain Blue Resort in Miami Beach. We know the scientific content is going to be amazing. It always is with fantastic speakers from across our field. But this year, we are changing the plenary format. We're throwing out the podiums. We're engaging our attendees with TED-style-like talks. We're hosting an array of visionary speakers in every session from some, uh, Sasha Strauss, a branding expert who's given one of the most watched TED Talks in history, and Michael Modic, Dr. Modic of the infamous Modic Changes, we've all seen on our MRIs. Well, he's going to provide us with insight on what they really mean. We have our new uh, Sports and Spine session sponsored by the NFL with players and consultants discussing the care of our elite athletes on and off the field. And I'm pumped to announce the launch of the new Todd Albert Scholar Awards, where the top 30 orthopedic resident and fellows We'll get $500 each to present at the meeting. This is similar to, to our Charlie Kuntz Scholars program that we've been supporting for years in neurosurgery uh, for our neurosurgery residents and fellows. We want our orthopedic brethren to join and be a part of this amazing meeting. And this is in addition to our APPs. We have a focused uh, course specifically made for them on Thursday afternoon, and all APPs are being offered free registration for the entirety of the meeting. And most exciting, we have an amazing slate of entertainment beyond the booth crawl and the beer and the wine debates. We're hosting a U2 tribute band named Elevation. They are awesome. They're currently touring in Europe, and they're going to put on a concert for us during the opening reception by the beach. Also, our industry partners are stepping up and taking part in our educational series that will truly elevate our synergy with one another. So take note, abstracts close December 1st in just a couple weeks. So get those abstracts in. The hotel room block will fill up quickly. It's already booking up, so register soon and get your housing early. I'm super excited. March 16th to the 19th, 2023. Come join us in Miami Beach. It is going to be a meeting like you've never seen before. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast, another installation in our ongoing series covering military neurosurgery. And today I am just delighted to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Forbes. Dr. Forbes is at the University of Cincinnati, and during his time in the Air Force, um, as he wrote about, interestingly, a few years ago in JNS Focus, he had the opportunity to do elective neurosurgical cases while overseas on active deployment um, with the Air Force. And we so frequently talk uh, when discussing military neurosurgery about field surgery, trauma care, concussion, penetrating injuries, and all of these emergent or traumatic injuries. And I, I think it's an underexplored region of this whole sphere of neurosurgical activity to think about the elective care that can be delivered for soldiers and by military neurosurgeons on deployment. So this is a really interesting topic I'm excited to drill into. Dr. Forbes, welcome to the show. Why don't you say hello for our listeners? Thank, thanks so much for having me, uh, JP. It's, it's great to be here. Great. So Dr. Forbes, why don't you uh, give us a bit of your background, how you came to join the Air Force, and what was going on in your life during the time of that deployment? Yeah, so um, so I signed up in the Air Force uh, after 9-11. I was uh, an undergrad, and I signed up for the uh, Health Professions Scholarship Program. 
and then went to uh, medical school at University of Pittsburgh, and then ultimately trained in neurosurgery at uh, Vanderbilt. And I finished in 2013, and then uh, started my active duty uh, commitment uh, with the Air Force from 2013 to 2017. And then, uh, so in 2014, I was uh, deployed to Craig Joint Theater Hospital in Bagram, Afghanistan. Very good. And during the time of your deployment, how long were you uh, overseas at that location and, and what kind of work were you doing in general? So uh, so I was overseas for about six and a half months. And uh, so uh, my deployment started in April of 2014. And so uh, basically uh, I flew in uh, through uh, Qatar and then uh, got started in uh, at Bagram, and um, it, it's interesting. Uh, initially, so by 2014, uh, the the war had actually wound down quite a bit, and we weren't really seeing as many traumatic uh, injuries. And uh, so, at that point in time, we had the we were given the very unique opportunity uh, uh, to help. Uh, with humanitarian care, and, and so with the uh, uh, the local Afghan population, and so uh, it, it was a really uh, 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 neat experience, and uh, uh, specifically was able to work with uh, an Afghan trainee, and um, there was a, a Korean hospital where Afghan uh, patients were able to come in through the uh, the gates and to be evaluated. And, um, and so uh, the majority of the, uh, the primary care physicians um, available to uh, the, lo the local population were actually South Korean uh, physicians. Hmm. And um, so, um, you know, many of the uh, American providers uh, helped with humanitarian care. It was an optional thing, so not everyone helped. And uh, so, for instance, at, at that time, our neurologist was not as uh, interested in, in uh, helping with the uh, uh, with the clinic. So, so I uh, served as both the uh, neurosurgical con uh, uh, consult as well as uh, uh, when uh, needed in the capacity of a neurologist, just trying to help folks who had uh, who had non-surgical issues. And um, uh, you know, I think it was really a, a neat thing uh, that we were uh, able able to do uh, for the population. Um, I think when you look at Afghanistan, um, you know, it's really a, a unique place. It's one of the, the poorest countries in the world. Uh, it's been ravaged uh, for the past 50 years or more with essentially near perpetual warfare. You know, the medical community uh, especially has been hit hard and uh, uh, the training infrastructure that's in place in Afghanistan ha has been affected uh, by all of these things and right. on, on top of that you know it's one of the, uh, the most uh, dangerous places in the world to provide humanitarian care and so I think it was really a, a special thing um, that the, uh, the South Korean uh, military and the US military came together uh, being able to offer humanitarian, not only humanitarian care, but also uh, to try and uh, 
try and provide longevity, you know, with training of an Afghan uh, neurosurgical team as well. Wow, that's um, that's really impactful and very inspiring to hear that. As you said, as the as the war effort was slowing down, you you find yourself in an environment of need with a skill set that's not available to the people in that region, and it's it's really heartening to hear that you were put to work for the people that needed it. Um, like I said before, reading uh, your article in that Janet's Focus, it hadn't even occurred to me that things like this go on. How common is it for a deployed member of our armed forces? Um, to do this kind of work, this kind of humanitarian need, especially in, in a field as specialized as ours um, for the local population. Does, does this commonly go on or was this kind of a unique set of circumstances that enabled you to do this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I, I think, um, you, you know, that uh, it's useful to think of how, how things are interpreted by uh, U.S. military command. And they always think of the mission foremost. And so they think of taking care of U.S. Uh, troops and allied troops and being able to treat wartime injuries. And uh, I, I think it became pretty clear as the war was winding down that there uh, that you essentially had U.S. military uh, medical personnel who uh, who were not always that busy, you know, and uh, and so there was less engagement and uh, and I think during my time there, you know, uh, there uh, there were really only a, a handful of procedures that were required on U.S. military personnel. I think slightly more on uh, Afghan allied troops, um, but that's probably uh, you know probably less than fifteen in a six and a half month period. And so, really, when you look at that circumstance, when you look at having highly trained medical personnel uh, in a region of the world where the reality is that uh, everyday civilians don't have access for complex to complex neurosurgical care. And uh, when you look at really the need uh, to enhance uh, Afghan neurosurgical training and capability, um, I, I think our, uh, our mission command looked at that and really saw an opportunity to try and improve the livelihood of Afghan civilians and improve the training of Afghan medical providers. And, um, and so I do think that it's uh, a little bit of a unique thing. I, I, I think if you look back to some previous uh, uh, military operations in Iraq that uh, hum elective humanitarian care had been provided um, hmm. But I think relatively rare uh, in, in the in the history of the U.S. Uh, military. Yeah, I I wonder, and I guess this this is a good opportunity to to fill in our listeners about what kind of uh, infrastructure and what kind of resources you have available in general, because I imagine that obviously wherever you're working in your uh, regular capacity on deployment it's going to be a hospital equipped for neurosurgery. But some of these elective pathologies that you were treating, um, tumors, uh, degenerative spine conditions, are, I would imagine, outside the milieu of what a military neurosurgeon at a base hospital overseas is expected to be treating. And so what kind of equipment did you have? What were the operating rooms like? And, and was there any mismatch between 
the tools you had available and the pathologies you were trying to treat. And I asked this with the caveat, of course, that if you did the surgeries, obviously you had the equipment you needed to do them safely in an elective setting. But I, just, I wonder, and I would imagine that the tools you had available, the facilities, the ICU would not be up to par to what you would have in a normal elective setting back home. Yeah, I think that's a great, great question, JP. And uh, the short answer is, is that it required a great deal of preparation. Right. And uh, so we, we did have, uh, you know, we had outstanding medical providers. We had outstanding scrubs. Um, we had access to, uh, you know, routine uh, spinal instrumentation and basic, fairly basic microscopes. And, um, and so, uh, so, you, you know, I think that, uh, I think that you're absolutely right when you compare, uh, those amenities to, uh, to some of the amenities that we're used to back in the United States, um, that, uh, that maybe it was a, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, uh, we were certainly limited in some capacities, but I think, um, uh, you know, one of the most uh, essential uh, parts of uh, to making making sure that all of these uh, procedures were successful uh, was meticulous preparation, not only uh, from the neurosurgical perspective, but also including discussion with the anesthesia team and the post uh, the intensivist that would be taking care of the uh, patients uh, postoperatively, and um, and so I think it really, looking back, it was really a concerted effort, you know, among all of these different uh, subspecialties. And um, you know, I think it's really important to mention that we had a uh, a weekly ethical panel, you know, where we, yeah. um, and so where we had fifteen providers, and um, and so every single case that we did for humanitarian care, we reviewed. Uh, the presentation of the patient, we reviewed the imaging, we discussed the natural history of the disorder. So if we didn't do anything, what, what was going to happen to this patient? We discussed the capabilities of local Afghan medical personnel. Uh, we discussed the capabilities of the institution and the surgical plan, the risks, the benefits, the expectations of the surgery. And so, uh, these were very in-depth discussions that sometimes went on for hours. On some nights, it was hours where we, we were in this room. And um, really, just because we wanted to make sure that we did the right thing for our patients um, and, um, and you, you know, that we wanted to make sure that whatever procedure, procedures were offered were within the scope of uh, the capabilities of the institution. Right. Um, very reasonable to do so. And, and sounds like uh, sounds like you uh, crossed all the T's, dot all the I's to make sure that this important care you were giving was, as you say, being given in a safe manner. Um, I wonder. So you you find these local people who have the need, you deliver the care for the pathologies they have and then kind of, at, you know, as we're talking, my mind is racing. I'm just kind of working through all the normal process we would expect with, with some of these cases. And the next place my mind goes is follow-up. Because obviously while you're there, you can be actively a part of the hospitalization and the in-hospital care. But you, you mentioned your deployment there was six, six and a half months. So 
Um, and you also mentioned the shortage of physicians. You were functioning in some capacity as a neurologist as well because of your expertise. For some of these patients with tumor pathology, for example, what kind of long-term care do they have access to? And, and were you able in any way to influence or, or kind of set things up for them even once you knew you'd be gone? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. And, um, and, and you know, I, I think, um, so long-term care was very important. And um, so, for instance, when I was there, um, I sometimes saw patients, I, I saw patients that had been operated on at Craig Joint Theater Hospital, as many as more, more than five years prior to my arrival. And so, uh, so that was one very important part of the care that we were able to deliver is that, uh, you know, the military presence had been there for a long time and we expected it to be there in the future. And uh, even uh, towards the end of, of my deployment, uh, elective humanitarian care continued now, ultimately, they, they discontinued the care with the exception that patients that had been treated in the past still were able to get access uh, uh, to care to the hospital. Hmm. But um, I think uh, to answer some of your questions, and you had a few different questions. So we attempted to facilitate uh, long-term access to care through a few different measures. You know, obviously, there was... Uh, counseling patients about, uh, you know, the normal protocol, if they had an issue, how to get back on base through the Korean gate uh, to be evaluated. And um, I think in addition to that, we worked uh, through local Afghan providers, not only uh, the uh, neurosurgeons in training who were available in the community and who continued to follow many of these patients, uh, after my departure, but also with uh, local Afghan primary care physicians who are a component of the team in place at CJTH. And so um, in addition to that, what I commonly did, um, and, and this obviously wasn't able uh, to benefit all patients, but any patient that had access uh, to email uh, was given my contact information and uh, I've corresponded with patients, uh, you know, for uh, for uh, for years uh, after after leaving the theater, you know, uh, just over email, and trying to help uh, with with different things. And um, and so you also had a very good question about what to do in in uh, with ancillary services. So patients who had tumors uh, who may have needed chemotherapy. Right. You know, what was the usual protocol? And, um, you know, the majority of patients who came to us, you know, Afghanistan is predominantly a fee-for-service uh, type uh, model in terms of uh, medical care for the community. And really, the patients that were coming to us uh, didn't have access to that care. And so... There were a handful of cases. I remember one young man who was a barber who had an oligodendroglioma where we really tried to go outside the, the usual channels, you know, somebody who could really benefit from chemotherapy. And so uh, in trying to get humanitarian funding that was available to provide uh, this young man with chemotherapy. And um, in, in most cases, you know, that was the exception. In most cases... Uh, it wasn't really possible 
to obtain care for these patients outside uh, the purview of what was provided in, in, at the military hospital. I see. Um, that actually dovetails nicely with, with um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about when you, you talk about uh, giving your contact information out and following up with some of these people virtually via email. Um, another important aspect of what we do and something that we've talked about frequently on this show is the relationship we have with our patients. And again, in, in a trauma setting, um, sometimes we can develop that relationship down the line after we've provided emergency care. But in an elective setting, that becomes paramount, um, getting someone to give you their trust to move from a clinic to an inpatient setting. Um, and at least here in normal practice in, in the States, domestically, where they have the opportunity to see multiple surgeons and pick the one that they trust the most and have the closest relationship with. I wonder what that experience was like, again, in an elective setting where you're overseas, you're there in capacity as a military surgeon, and you're meeting patients, evaluating patients from another nation, far from home, um, outside of your culture and outside of their culture from their perspective. I imagine using an interpreter, of course. What, what was your capacity to form that relationship like with the patients and how did that relationship evolve and develop uh, post-operatively after successful surgeries when they were recovering? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I think it was really a special thing, you know, to be able to, uh, to get to know patients, uh, you, you, you know, from a very different culture. Um, and, um, you know, the patients that presented to us obviously had, had, very severe pathology. You know, these were patients that were going blind from pituitary tumors or, or going, uh, becoming paraplegic from POTS disease. Mm. And, um, and so the, the pathology was very severe and very advanced. You know, obviously these patients are not getting uh, imaged because they have headaches, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and so, uh, so I think in the clinic setting, we did have interpreters and, uh, and uh, we often would, would have, in addition to interpreters, members of the primary care team that I talked about are the neurosurgical trainees. And, um, and uh, I, I think it was really a special thing to be able uh, to kind of transcend these cultural barriers and uh, to discuss uh, uh to discuss the plan of care, our rationale, and uh, to help them with expectations, you know. And um, I, I will say that the culture there uh, is, uh, is, is, is a little bit different maybe than our culture in that uh, I, I think people uh, tended to be very, very accepting, you know, of, of, of whatever was going on with them and, you know, whatever God wills, you know, that type of thing. Right. And, um, and we did try and spend a lot of time about, you know, what's the natural history. If we don't do anything, what can you expect? You know, what would we be doing with the surgery? We review the images and we talk with them in detail with our, uh, uh, translator team. And, um, and, and so I think it was really a, a very important thing that we spent a lot of time with these patients and, uh, in talking with them about the intervention. And ultimately, I can say it was an incredibly rewarding experience, you know, to be able uh, uh, to help uh, to help with these uh, 
uh, you know, patients where, um, you know, ultimately a lot of times we think of uh, neurosurgery as such a wonderful thing because it's a global language that people mm. understand when people get their vision back. You know, the lady w- who was uh, paraplegic in a wheelchair, ultimately after uh, her spinal cord was decompressed, regained the ability to walk, you know, and, uh, and being able to, to, to do these, uh, uh, to do these things, I, I think was an incredibly rewarding experience. Wow. I, I can, uh, I can only imagine what that experience would be like and how that informs your practice today and how, how you would carry that forward in your dealings with patients here on the home front. Um, I, I feel like, you know, we're a technical tribe of people. We do something for a living and we like to get better at what we do. And so when, even in that, you know, on the order of months in that brief period of time that you were doing these elective cases and caring for these people, I imagine that in the course of interacting with these patients um, through an interpreter with your team there, um, you got better at those conversations, just like we all get better at talking to patients here in our training and as we establish practices as uh, young junior attendings. I wonder if when you first started meeting with these patients for elective cases, and you mentioned some patients had hesitancies because of difference in culture, difference in religion for you know what, what God wills will happen. Early on, did you have more patients who may have not elected to go forward with the surgery. And then over time you got better at speaking to them in their language, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, kind of reaching them at their level culturally, or was the severity of pathology and the need for surgery enough of a driver that you didn't really have anyone refuse surgery if offered? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I think early on we erred by, uh, withholding care. And, uh, and so uh, there, there's one young man in particular who had a craniopharyngioma um, who came early on in our experience and uh, uh, had been uh, biopsied in Pakistan. And uh, so the family had brought him to us. And um, we spent a lot of time talking about him at our weekly ethical conference, you know, just trying to do the right thing. And uh, ultimately, we decided, you know, we felt this was early on in our experience. We weren't sure how much we could do safely at Craig Joint Theater Hospital. And uh, so we ultimately declined uh, his surgical care. Mm. We, we advised him uh, to go back to Pakistan, uh, to try and get back to Pakistan. And um, later on, um, the uh, the young man was brought to the hospital by his family after he had uh, suffered a herniation event. Oh. And uh, so that, that was obviously a, a difficult thing, you know. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's a really hard story, um, I think. Any human, any physician, and more specifically, anyone in our field hurts to hear a story like that. Um, And I think underscores how sometimes we can all be a little psychotic about getting things done for our patients, even though other people in the hospital think we're crazy. 
um, for how uh, urgently we want to get our things done and uh, the importance we place on the care of our patients. Uh, but an important story, uh, which I thank you for sharing for our listeners to teach that lesson and remind us all that the urgency of the pathologies that we treat, um, that that's it's true here and it's true on the other side of the world. Um, at this I, point, yes, sir. Oh yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt JP. I, I think the, the one thing that I would, that I would say about that story too, is that it really taught us, you know, we struggled at first, which cases should we take on, you know? Right. And, um, you know, on the flip side, we would have, what if we would have taken that young man to surgery and there, he had a complicated tumor and what if there would have been some type of intraoperative event, some type of complication? And um, so we struggled a lot with that. You know, what, what cases should we do? What cases should we not do? And, and I think it taught us a lot, you know, and it, it, it wasn't when his family brought him back to the hospital. It wasn't the next week. Um, you know, it was weeks, weeks later. I don't remember how long exactly, but... I think we had been hopeful that his family could take him to Pakistan to get care. And uh, I think it became extremely clear to us that, uh, you know, if th these patients that didn't get care at the base were not going to receive care, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I think uh, it's, it altered our perspective. You know, when we, as we learn more and we learn more about the capabilities and um, and what would happen to these patients if we didn't if we weren't able to offer treatment? I think uh, we uh, we began taking on more complex pathologies at the hospital as a result. Yeah, and you know we we did a series on this podcast um, la about a year ago called the case I can't forget, and for one of those conversations we had on my boss, Dr. Rich Byrne, who talked about complications and talking to families about complications, dealing with them um, and kind of handling that yourself as the surgeon. And I, I think one of the important aspects that we touched on in that conversation, which seems very relevant here, thinking about this young man, is the idea of prognostication and how unable we are to do so effectively too often. And here we are living in the universe where you thought that that young man could get care elsewhere. He didn't and had that outcome. But perhaps in another history, uh, you had offered him surgery. And as you said, some horrible event happened intraoperatively. And then you'd be just, just as much as we are here today talking about how, what if I had just held back? What if I had sent him to Pakistan? And, and the truth of the matter is, we, we make the decisions that we make with the knowledge and resources available at the time. And we never know what would have happened otherwise. Um, so there are so many important lessons there um, with, with the story of, of that young man. Um, at this point in the conversation, I, I want to respect your time and, and try to land this plane. But um, I would normally ask our guest, you know, if this was a charitable organization or an international relief effort, how can we get involved? How can people help? How can they contribute? But my knowledge of military management, logistics, administration, all comes from fiction. And I, if I were to distill that into two words, it would be red tape. So frankly, I have no idea how decisions get made and things 
get done in a military setting. But if we have listeners who are in the military and practicing neurosurgery who find themselves currently deployed at a overseas base or um, may do so in the future, have, have a deployment coming up, if they were interested in doing this kind of humanitarian work, if they wanted to offer their services to the local civilian population, can you offer any advice about how they might go about trying to initiate a program like this? Yeah, well, um, that's, uh, that's a great question. And, um, I, I think, um, you know, I think it's a very location dependent thing, you know, and, um, uh, we, we had talked before in the conversation just about how the, the complex landscape of Afghanistan, you know, there's such a need in Afghanistan. It's one of the poorest countries in the world, it has one of the highest infant mortality rates. And, uh, but it's also one of the dang- most dangerous places to provide humanitarian care. And so when, when I was there, there was a, uh, a pediatrician from Chicago who was, uh, was assassinated. Uh, he was in Kabul and uh, mm. trying to enter the hospital and had two other uh, medical providers with him. And, uh, you know, this was a guy who really just had incredible, uh, uh, just uh, an incredible individual had essentially left his practice in Chicago just trying to help and uh, and so wow. I think it's uh, I think it's a very complex topic, and I think there certainly is a need, and um, and I, I think I would be lying if I if I said that I had all of the answers of how to advance the care and advance the training uh, right. in Afghanistan. I, I hope that during our time there that we were able uh, to help uh, to some extent, whatever small extent that may have been, but um, but I think it's. Uh, it's a very complex uh, topic, and uh, um, I think that would be my answer. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Forbes, this has been a very enjoyable, enlightening, and educational conversation for me. Um, it's cliche, but I would like to thank you for your service. It's November as we're speaking, only a few days after Veterans Day, and uh, hearing these stories and, and your experiences in those months overseas, it, it's clear that you not only in your capacity as a surgeon for our military uh, were there taking care of, of our troops, but you know I, I would call that above and beyond and, and offering your services to the local civilian population for these pathologies that otherwise uh, they, they had no capacity to, to seek treatment for that. So um, I really appreciate what you did overseas. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about it. For our listeners, I will point them um, to that article you wrote, if if anyone would like to read about these cases that Dr. Forbes did and the experiences in more detail in terms of the pathologies, the numbers, the outcomes, this was in uh, December of 2018 in uh, Journal Neurosurgical Focus. Um, really interesting read where he kind of breaks down the cases that he did and, and what he was able to accomplish over there in that setting. So uh, Dr. Forbes, again, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much, JP. I really appreciate you having me on here. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.